Okay, just a couple of announcements. A reminder on the uh, Chafer Seminary spring registration begins next Monday. And when do classes begin, Barb? See, I hit you with a question. 23rd. Okay, that's good for me to know, since I'm teaching uh, history of doctrine, starting on the 23rd. Okay, so uh, registration begins on the 2nd. Our congregational meetings in February. Registrations open for the Chafer Conference and um, information I'll be posting. We're posting different things on the Israel tour, and that goes on the deanbibleministries.org. Uh, slash news page. Just hit the news tab and it'll take you there. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit. And so when we sin, we're no longer walking according to the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh. And so we need to make sure that we are in right relationship uh, with the Lord. So let's bow our heads together, and um, after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're indeed grateful for the grace that you have demonstrated toward us, Uh, grace in terms of our salvation, that we do not have to curry favor with you, we do not have to do certain things in order to render ourselves savable, but you have done everything because there is nothing that we can do. Those who are spiritually dead, separated from you, have no ability to do anything but, but, but works that are dead works. So, Father, we pray that you would, uh, that we would be thankful and grateful for all that you have given us. And, Lord, we pray that as we reflect on the gospel, that we might come to have a clearer perception of what the gospel entails, that which is necessary to communicate, and that we can understand this from the text of Scripture, so we can be equipped to communicate, not only communicate the gospel, but to help those who may have a, an inadequate understanding of the gospel become more biblical in their understanding of the gospel. And so we need to be equipped and understand what the issues of the day are. And we pray that you will open our eyes to these truths. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you can begin begin just by turning in your Bible to Acts chapter 10. 
Acts chapter 10. And we are looking, this is the fourth part of a series on what is the gospel. And the reason we are addressing this is that it is mentioned in our text in Philippians chapter 1. And Paul has expressed his gratitude to the Philippians because they have uh, partnered with him financially. That's the concept of fellowship in this passage. They have partnered with him financially. It's a thank you note for the way they have contributed as no other church has. And so he is uh, thanking them for that, for their participation or their fellowship in the gospel ministry. And so as we look at this, we have to understand what the gospel ministry is, and to do that we have to understand what the gospel is. And some some people may ask the question, well, why do we need a detailed study of something like this? I know the gospel. Some people may all may just know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. I don't think that that was all Paul said, because they had been singing hymns earlier, and he had been uh, proclaiming the gospel around um, Philippi for some time prior to his being thrown in jail. So it, it wasn't that he, the Philippian jailer did not know who Jesus was because when he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he obviously assumed the Philippian jailer knew who Jesus Christ was. I mean, you walk up to a stranger on the street and you say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't have any idea who you're talking about. You know, we have to get, give meaning and content to these terms and so that they understand what, what, what it means. And God, the Holy Spirit, usually manages to straighten out uh, some of the mistakes that we make uh, because we start off usually not being as adequate as we think we are or we just want to, and we are driven more by enthusiasm and our desire to communicate the gospel, and then somebody asks us a question that stumps us. And I I don't know how many times I had situations like that over the years when I was first uh, getting in, long before I was in seminary, but just trying to communicate the gospel to people I worked with or people I, I ran across in one way or another. So we have to continually be reminded of these things because issues change. You know, it's not a static environment in the cosmic system. Satan is always seeking to disrupt and to uh, confuse the issues related to the gospel. And our generation is no different from any other generation. So I think it's an important question that believers should ask because everybody here, as I look around, I bet everybody here can do a tremendous job communicating the gospel to an unbeliever. But my job is to equip the saints, and we have a lot of people that we don't see because they're part of the um, uh, Internet uh, live streaming audience or otherwise, and they need some help and clarification as well. So in the previous three sessions, I've started off with a quote from Dr. Whitmer's periodical review of a series of uh, periodical articles claiming to answer the question, what is the gospel? And in his quote, he said, none of them ever really told us what the gospel was. They told us a lot of things about what it wasn't, but they never really clarified it. And, and that's that's true for a lot of Christians. I cannot tell you uh, 
how many times over the years in talking to people who want to be baptized or want to be a member or something like that, could you tell me why you know that you're going to go to heaven when you die? And I've been surprised at, uh, uh, well, I, um, and they stumble over that. I had one lady basically say, well, I've been good, and I've been going to church for a lot of years, and I actually knew her background, and she had gone to another Bible church just in the little town across uh, 45 from me, happened to be the uh, Grace Bible Church of Hitchcock where Jay Collins grew up. Of course, I didn't know Jay way back then. And um, she just caught off guard by the question. And and that happens with a lot of people. So we always have to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and we ought to be able to at least address what the hope that is in us is. So we need all of that. But we also have confusion in a broad sense. We have a lot of people, a lot of churches, who have a works-based gospel that they emphasize. And they emphasize the importance of, of Christian service as a means to the spiritual life and even a means to salvation. Uh, liberals have odd views of the atonement, odd views of sin. I have a good friend that I've known since we were about 12 years old, and he didn't get saved until he was in college. And after that, he came back to Houston, went, went to the church where he had grown up, and um, they were talking about uh, the gospel one Sunday morning in the Sunday school class, and he was had become the teacher, and he said, well, Christ died on the cross as our substitute. That's what the scriptures teach. He died in our place. One lady stood up and said, I can't accept that. That's barbaric. And that led to some problems in the church, and he ended up going somewhere else, not realizing, because he was a fairly young believer, uh, what the prob- problems were there. I could have told him because of the type of church that it was. So anyway... We have those kinds of problems. Then we have problems even within uh, evangelicalism with just sloppy language. The Scripture says that we are to believe the Lord Jesus Christ died for us. I believe the crucifixion is definitely a part of the gospel. But we have people who uh, don't use the word believe. Instead, they use words like invite Jesus into your heart or invite Jesus into your life or commit yourself to the Lord, something like that. And they may very well be saved and probably are because what happened in their soul is they heard the gospel and they believed it was true. And then it got muddied up by somebody saying, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. So they pray, pray a prayer that really is meaningless. And uh, But they're still saved. God understands that they're trusting in Christ as their Savior, but that doesn't excuse a sloppy presentation. So we need to recognize that there are a lot of people who do that. And the other thing we ought to recognize is that within the context of our culture, in a shift from modernism to postmodernism, there's a major shift in the way we think about truth. In modernism, truth was absolute, and truth could be arrived at. I mean, everybody believed this one way or the other, even though they arrived at different truths. They all believed there was a truth that humans could come to know and that that truth could be arrived at through the use of your intellect, through the use of reason, through the use of logic. But by the end of the 19th century and clearly by the, after World War II, it was clear to the intellectual elite 
that reason and logic really hadn't brought us to a to a great position as Western culture. So they were, there's a rejection. Europe rejected it earlier than than uh, the United States did because we had a firmer base for um, uh, we had a firmer base from Scripture. But in Europe, postmodernism really started early in the 20th century. But here it wasn't until after World War II. But it was this shift that if science and reason and logic could not keep us from slaughtering hundreds of millions of people in World War II, then it can't get us anything that we want. It can't bring peace. It can't bring joy. It can't bring anything. So what's the use of science and reason and logic? And so that this is what happened is, and, and the seeds were already sown through a lot of various philosophies in the late 19th and early 20th century, and so the focus became on emotion and each person determining their own truth because obviously the pursuit of truth through reason was a dead end. So let's chunk reason and let's come up with emotion. And just yesterday or the day before, an article appeared on American Thinker that was entitled, Focus on Emotion Over Rational Thinking says the Washington State Department of Health. That's the title of the article. Focus on emotion over rational thinking, says Washington State Department of Health, and it's written by Eric Utter. Now, the title says it all. It says that we need to chunk reason as a means of getting to anything meaningful in life, and we need to just uh, just get in touch with our feelings and make all of our decisions on the basis of how it makes us feel, and not on the basis of fact or logic or absolute truth. And this is, people have been saying this who've studied postmodernism, studied the culture for the last uh, 50 years, 60 years. Uh, There are many people that were very insightful, understood what was going on uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago, and were writing about this. They didn't have that, the term postmodernism really wasn't out yet, but they were they were doing that. So so when you say you need to invite Jesus into your heart, that is a very emotional kind of thing. That appeals to a postmodern mindset. It makes the focus of the gospel uh, relational. Now the result of the believing the gospel is a relationship with Christ. But you have people say, "Would you like to have a relationship with Christ?" That's how you get saved. Didn't save Judas. Judas had a great relationship with Christ. There were others who had a relationship with Christ that were not saved. So relationship with Christ, and that is not the issue. The issue is what does the Bible say about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross? That's the essence of the proclamation of the of the gospel, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes, that we have in the Lord's table. Who was Jesus? Because that's fundamental to determining what he did on the cross. Who is Jesus and what did he do on the cross? That's the issue. And we only learn those things by going to the scripture. And a lot of people have trouble with the way some people in the free grace movement have articulated this. Actually, uh, I first read it, and one of the best defenses of it was written by a five-point Calvinist who doesn't really understand the free grace gospel at all. But he understands the scripture. Uh, 
And the point that he was making was that these statements in Scripture, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you will have life on his name. That's a statement. In philosophical jargon, that's called a proposition. Or in English jargon, that would be called a declarative sentence. A declarative sentence declares a truth, something to be true or factual, and it can be either proved or not proved. It, in philosophical jargon, it's called a proposition. It's either true or not true. In English, you studied uh, declarative sentences, which are stating a fact. You've studied questions. A question asks, well, where are you going? Well, that's neither true nor false. It may make a command, go to the store, get some milk. Well, that's neither true nor false. It's a command. But you can find milk at the store is either true or false. That's a proposition. The statement that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins and that if you believe on him, you will have life in his name is a proposition. It's either true or false. You either believe that it's true, and you don't believe with your emotions. You believe with your brain. Belief is a volitional, intellectual activity, but a lot of people have trouble with that. See, in postmodernism, intellectual is a bad word. You know, I want to have a relationship with God. Yes, at first you have to decide whether or not God exists. You have to believe the propositions of Scripture about God, and that's intellectual. You don't do it with your emotions. You either do it with your emotions or you do it with your intellect. Those are the only options that you have. And so you believe that. And when you believe that, you enter into a relationship with God. And, and we're told in Scripture we're adopted into the royal family of God. We are made a new creature in Christ and many, many other things that, that we've all studied. But that's really important. But the gospel of emotion is invite Jesus into your life. See, the appeal is to the relationship, to warmth, warm fuzzies and everything else, but you don't find that in the Scripture. And I remember when I first heard this concept of proposition, the first thing that came to my mind was that before I went to seminary, I had read a number of books just seeking to understand, well, how did we get the Scripture? How do we know this is God's Word? How do I know it's really true? Going through all of the apologetics and the evidence and everything like that. And one of the things I noticed was that in every book that talked about the nature of biblical truth, it always used the phrase, the Bible is a book of propositional truth. It is setting forth propositions that are true. And you either believe them or not. That's the issue of our volition. And so not long ago as I was thinking about that and going back through some of this material, I did a search in my Lagos library, and I have uh, thousands and thousands of books, probably 10, 10 or 12,000 different books and periodicals, and I just searched on the term propositional truth and came up with you know probably thousands of hits. And most of them are in books that are written defending the infallibility, inerrancy, and accuracy of the Word of God, which as it should be. But for some reason, 
in, in the last 30 years, people don't like hearing that. that. That seems to make God a cold, distant machine, and it's not. That's the wrong way to think about it. If you think it makes God a cold, distant machine, you've been brainwashed by postmodernism. And that's true for many of us because that's the nasty culture, the world system that we grew up in. So it's important to understand, take these things apart because they're at the heart of a lot of discussions uh, that are going on around us. So we have those kinds of issues and we have issues related to just what is the, uh, what's necessary uh, to understand in the gospel. And, and I don't want to get off into a big discussion on this, but about 15, 20 years ago, there developed within the uh, free grace gospel group of theologians and pastors a, a view that insisted, based on some statements by, G, by uh, Jesus in John 5, which is before the cross, some other passages that were before the cross, where Jesus just said, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life, something to that effect. I'm just paraphrasing. The problem is they took that and said, see, that's the gospel. You don't have to even know about the cross. You don't have to understand that Christ died for your sins. All you have to do is believe Jesus will save you. And that has become known as the crossless gospel. And it caused a split. It split churches. It split seminaries. Chafer Seminary had a big battle because of that. Back in the um, around 2005 and six, and led to our moving uh, to to Albuquerque. So this is something that's important because that was you know 15 years ago. A lot of us have have slept a lot since then, and we've sort of forgotten some of those things. And there's some younger people that are uh, involved in our ministry now in the church and online, and they don't know anything about any of that. And so people need to understand these things because you're going to run into them. You may leave this church at some point, go to another church that's been impacted by this. You move across the country, you go to a church, and all of a sudden you, you hear something and say, well, I never, never quite heard it presented that way before. So you need to be aware of what these things are that are going around. That is part of the job of a pastor is protect you uh, from things that are wrong, that are uh, popular. So the thing that I ended in our opening, our opening uh, uh, section dealing with what is the gospel, or what is the what what is these these words evangelion and mean, um, and what's the focus of this of the good news? Paul states in First Corinthians two two, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I think this is a critical verse. It tells you two things. You have to know who Jesus Christ is. Why is he called Jesus, and what does Christos mean? What does that describe? And what do you know about his person? And the second thing you have to know is that he was crucified. He died for our sins. That shows us that the sin penalty has been paid for in the past as it was predicted for five or six thousand years from the beginning of Genesis up to up to the time of the crucifixion, you had uh, probably somewhere four or five thousand years of preparation 
and it was looking forward to anticipating the fulfillment of that promise that the seed of the woman would defeat the seed of the serpent. So last time, previous lessons, we've been going through the events in Acts in order to see how or what people, what the apostles said when the text said that they proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. When that verb evangelizo is used, which means to proclaim the good news, or the noun evangelion, which is the noun for good news. So last time we went through uh, some examples uh, that, for example, in Acts 5.42, I have the uh, my translation at the top and then the New King James at the bottom, which says, daily in the temple and in every house, they, that is the apostles, did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And the old King James, they, they translated evangelizo as preaching instead of proclaiming the good news. And there's, in one sense, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're missing the real core idea of what's going on here. They're proclaiming Jesus, the good news about Jesus as the Messiah. And what was the Messiah supposed to do according to uh, Isaiah 53 and other passages. He was he was going to be uh, killed, but he would also provide the way of, for his people to become righteous. So that's very important. And what we saw as we went through some of those passages is that there are six elements that seem to be emphasized in these passages that talk about proclaiming the good news. Number one, uh, in Acts 5.20, it's summarized as all the words of this life. For example, some in the group that believes in the crossless gospel, uh, they believe all you have to do is a pe- person has to understand that Jesus will give you life, and you just believe in that. You don't have to know anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But this is a summary. But what else is contained? They talk about the resurrection and the ascension as stated in Acts 5, 30 to 31. So those are both presented. Repentance of Israel is really mentioned, but it's not repentance from sin. And you will hear so many who read that into the text, and you can't find it there. When the the focus was on an Israel-based message, because when Jesus came... The message was from John the Baptist, then Jesus, then the disciples, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that didn't come out of a vacuum, and it's not repent of sin. It is turning to God. That's Deuteronomy chapter 30 that said that when all of Israel scattered throughout the whole world, that when they turn to God, that's a synonym, shuv, the synonym for repent, when they turn to God, God will restore them from the whole earth. So the message to Israel was, you need to turn back to God, turn away from your idols, turn back to God, and then God will restore you. Well, that kingdom offer was rescinded when the Pharisees accused Jesus of blasphemy, but I believe there is a potential re-offer of the kingdom in the early part of Acts. And it doesn't mean that it would have come quickly, but it would have come a lot quicker than we've observed in history. 
So you, it, it's all about context and understanding the messages of Scripture, messages to the Jews, to Israel, and messages to the church. Forgiveness of sin is emphasized in Acts 5.31 as one aspect of presenting the gospel. I may talk to one person, and talking to them, I may emphasize justification. I may talk to another person, and they're just overwhelmed with guilt of all the bad things they've done, and the emphasis is on forgiveness of sin. I may talk to somebody else, and and they're just desperately worried about dying and ending their existence, and it's the offer of life, or they're despondent, and you're offered them real abundant life. So there's different facets uh, to the work of Christ on the cross and the gospel, but it's grounded upon his death. That's mentioned also in that context. And then in Acts 5, uh, 5.42, it's proclaiming the good news of Jesus as the Messiah, understanding that messianic uh, message. We looked at Acts 8, the death of Stephen, and then the aftermath with Philip the Evangelist. And after Stephen was stoned and people scattered from Jerusalem, they went about preaching the word, literally evangelism. They are evangelizing, giving the evangelistic message, giving the gospel, proclaiming the good news of the word. And the other word that is used is the word caruso, which often, if not always, has the gospel message as its object. And uh, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. He's focusing on who Christ is. And what did Christ do on the cross? Acts 8.12, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news or proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Two different topics the Samaritans were confused on. One is because they, uh, because they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as scripture, they had no idea about the promises of a kingdom. It wasn't in their Old Testament text, so they had to come to understand that. They had to come to understand Jesus was the Messianic king who came to offer the kingdom. The kingdom was rejected, and that it's postponed until he returns to establish the kingdom at the end of the uh, tribulation. So that's, that's very important to understand that. But the object of belief is the message about the person of Christ who came and uh, paid for our sins. So we went through those passages. I'm just going to skip through this review in Acts 8, where we finished last time. And today I want to skip over to Acts 10. Now, there's a lot of information. We're just going to skip over a lot of it and summarize it, because I'm not doing a verse-by-verse teaching on what happens in Acts 10 and 11. So you have these two great chapters that repeat themselves. God understands that we only learn through repetition. We have to hear things over and over again. They need to be said in different ways and presented in different ways with visuals if we can because it takes a lot of us a lot of time to, to really grasp something, especially if we've never, uh, we've never heard it. On Sunday... We had a lady who came in and sat at the back of the church. I wasn't sure who she, she was, but the night before, I got a call from Mitch Glazer with uh, Chosen People telling me that one of the men on his staff had two adult children who were visiting their mother in Houston, 
they, it turns out, I found out more about them, they had both gone to Camp Shoshona, which is Aerial Ministries uh, camp up in um, uh, upstate New York, and they had taken courses on there, and all of their courses are related to understanding who Jesus is as the Messiah. So they both had gone through, one had gone through, had been there two weeks, one was there for three weeks, and so they've, they've really been exposed to a lot of information. But when you're coming out of a Jewish background, you're probably going to have to, it may take years before you really cross the finish line as you're studying and learning and, and trying to deal with all these things you've heard all your life that are in opposition to Christianity. So anyway, um, sometimes it doesn't take long. Sometimes it takes many times of hearing the gospel explained, so there has to be that repetition. So you have the story in Acts 10, and then after the story of Peter taking the gospel to the house of Cornelius, then he goes back to uh, Judea, and the other disciples say, what happened? We've heard things. Tell us the story. So Acts 11, Peter recounts what happened in Acts 10, and then uh, three chapters later, in Acts 15, or four chapters later, you have the situation where Paul has gone out on the first missionary journey, and he has taken the gospel to Gentiles, and this is disrupting, uh, disruptive to a lot of Jews who think they have a corner on the gospel. And so when they come back to Jerusalem, there is a meeting of all of the apostles to try to understand the relationship now of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ. And so they have this council. And so that chapter is described as the Jerusalem Council, and it focuses on all of these events that happened in chapter 10. So God wants us to pay a lot of attention to this. It's foundational because there's three chapters in Scripture devoted to this one episode where Peter takes the gospel uh, to Cornelius, a centurion. And so when we come to Acts chapter 10, uh, this is the episode where Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner, and I doubt that Simon's actual house is still there, but on the general location of it down by the uh, Mediterranean Sea, there is a place that is identified as uh, the house of Simon the Tanner, and that's what you can't read it, but that's what's written over the door there. And this is a uh, good, pla- good place as any to go on a tour group and talk about Acts 10 and 11 because it fits very nicely with the flow because the first day we get there, if we have time, we go there, we eat lunch, and then we'll drive north to Caesarea for the rest of the story. So it all all kind of pulls together. So uh, Peter is in Joppa, which is here on the Mediterranean. It's about 25 miles from Jerusalem to Lydda, which is where uh, he had uh, restored Tabitha to life in uh, chapter 9. And then he goes from there, and it's only a short distance of about uh, 10 or 15 miles from Lydda to Joppa. And that's where Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner, which is really interesting. I don't find too many people who address this, but what does a tanner do? He tans hides. Where do the hides come from? 
they're skinned off a car- carcass. And by touching a dead body it, under the Mosaic law, that renders you ceremonially unclean. So this is interesting that Peter is staying in the home of a tanner as background to understanding this whole episode. So that's it. And then the next place they're going to go is up to Caesarea, which is where Cornelius is located. Uh, he's a centurion in the Italian uh, regiment. So there is a, there's a group of about 600 in a, in a cohort, and he's over 100 men. That's why they're referred to as a centurion. We have a century, and a century refers to 100 years. So he's, he's a non-commissioned officer in command of approximately uh, 100 men. And to reach that rank, you have to have established some really uh, phenomenal leadership skills. You're, you're somebody who's very stable and somebody who has good administrative skills and is able to uh, handle uh, these hundred men. And he's described as a devout man who feared God. He is, he is a proselyte at the gate. That's the term that they would use to indicate that he hadn't really become a, uh, had made it all the way to Judaism yet, because for a lot of men, that involved would involve circumcision, and they weren't quite ready to do that as an adult. So, But he is a godly man. He fears the Lord, and he has a vision. And the vision is he sees this tablecloth coming down from heaven, and uh, he is told that he is to... Um, Excuse that comes up in verse 9, but it starts off talking about Cornelius and who he is. And uh, he has a vision that he needs to send some of his men down to Joppa. And there they're going to find Simon, uh, uh, who is surnamed Peter, and they're going to invite him back to uh, Caesarea. And then Peter has his vision of the tablecloth coming down. And he's, it, the text says he had become very hungry. And so he sees all of this food, and it's treif. Treif is the opposite of kosher. Okay, now you know a little more Yiddish. Treif is the opposite of kosher, which means they can't eat it. So treif means he's looking at shrimp and lobster and catfish and bacon and pork chops and good barbecue and every and he can't eat any of it because he says to the Lord, I have never uh, eaten anything unclean. You know that. Uh, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. That's in verse 14. And the Lord says again, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. I think that's interesting. The Lord wants him to kill and eat. That means this would take time. He's got to kill the animal, butcher the animal, prepare the meat, and and then eat it. And uh, he does this uh, three times. And then he takes it back, back to heaven. And uh, the voice that he hears says, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. That's, I thought about that today. I said, we refer to a lot of p- things people do as common. Hmm, maybe we ought not do that. We can find a better word. Uh, I'm just being facetious there. So um, Peter then goes up to Cornelius. These men come, and they take him uh, with him with them back up north to to Caesarea. And 
as they go along the way, they describe some things about Cornelius. He said, they say, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house. Now, there's a lot of language in here that makes it sound like he could have been an Old Testament saint. But then there's a verse in chapter 11, um, verse 14, when Peter is reciting this uh, to the other apostles, he says um, that the Spirit had sent these men to Joppa uh, to go to Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Okay, so that seems to indicate they're not saved yet, but they're knocking on the door. They are uh, about to, they, they, they are very close in an Old Testament sense but they haven't understood that Jesus is the the Messiah. And so as we look at this, we understand that as background, that uh, Cornelius is a centurion who's a proselyte described as as a godly man, and he's a man of prayer. So he's been praying to know more about God, and now God is answering that prayer by sending Peter to him. And then when Peter arrives... He explains to them or proclaims to them the uh, the good news in verse 36. He says, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, proclaiming the good news of peace. Now, the King James translate preaching, uh, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, but it makes more sense and it's better translation to say proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. And when we compare that with other scripture, we understand this is talking about uh, reconciliation and that uh, Jesus Christ, by paying the penalty for sin, is, uh, establishes the foundation for peace between God and man. So they, um, uh, Peter says that God sent the children of Israel proclaiming the good news of peace Through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Then verse 37 we read, That word you know that happened throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Now there's the word keruso, because his message, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, was somewhat, uh, for for those who were unsaved, was a gospel message uh, for that time. And Acts 10.39 then we read, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. So he mentions crucifixion. Him God raised up on the third day. So he mentions the resurrection and showed him openly so that there was visible testimony of witnesses to the reality of the uh, of the resurrection. Then we skip down a verse to, to uh, 1042, and we read, And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, commanded us to preach Caruso. So that use of Caruso indicates the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. So this is the content of what they're preaching, that it is he, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was ordained by God, appointed by God, 
to be judge of the living and the dead. And that's true from what Jesus said, that he was appointed now to be the judge because he is our peer in the sense that he's true humanity. So we're not judged by God at, at the judgment seat of Christ. We're judged by the Son who is human and who has been tested in all points as we are. So he says, who was ordained by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And then in verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. And the word for remission of sins is aphasis in the lower left-hand corner. And that's the same word that is... Uh, or a form of the same word that's used in, for example, 1 John 1, 9. Uh, it's, it's a verb there, afiemi, but this is the noun form, and it means to cancel a debt. It means forgiveness. It has the idea of being released from a penalty. So the, you, you see several things coming to, together here. Now, the phrase, whoever believes in him, I've written out here in this lighter blue box on the right, and in the Greek, it's tan, and I've transliterated for you so you could read it, tan pistuanta esautan. You have the definite article there with a participle. For the gram grammar geeks, that means this is a participle that has a uh, function like a noun or a relative pronoun. So it's whoever uh, believes, and it is a path, uh, present tense verb. So whoever, uh, it's present tense participle, whoever believes, and then it's ace autan. Now that's the same phraseology you have numerous times all through the Gospel of John. When he comes to a conclusion in John 20, 30 and 31, he said, these, that is, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You have pistuo ace autan. That's what you have in John 2 when Jesus shows up at the first Passover. Uh, after he uh, after he comes out of the wilderness, and there he sa says, John John writes that and many believed on his name. It's translated with the English preposition on, but it could be in or that, and it's it's bestuo ace outon. So that's the same word, and these prepositions can be translated into English different ways, so people have made the mistake of thinking that if it's believed that, it's different from believe on and believe in, but they're semantically equivalent because the, the, basic, uh, the basic structure in the Greek or the, pro, uh, or the preposition is, is the same. So here we see that the emphasis is on forgiveness of sin. It's not on li life. It's not on eternal life. It's not on redemption. It's on um, forgiveness of sins. So that's that's very interesting. It doesn't mean that he didn't. He probably had a lot of discussions uh, with those in Cornelius's household. He may have talked about the other things, but he's mentioned reconciliation and he's mentioned uh, mentioned forgiveness. So what have we what do we see here? That in his proclamation of the gospel, he's proclaiming peace which is reconciliation toward God, and that's in Acts uh, 10.36. Uh, he is talking about reconciliation through Jesus Christ. He is the means by which we are reconciled to God. The third thing he emphasizes is the person of Christ. We have to know who Jesus is. We can't just believe on anybody 
as a way of getting saved. We have to believe on Jesus Christ, and we must understand something. It can be very basic, that he's the Son of God, and he died for our sins. Something that a child can understand. He doesn't understand it in an adult way, but he understands it as, as a child. It's just very, very basic. Uh, it focuses on the fact in this, in this uh, expression, verse 36, that th- uh, the peace is through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That emphasizes that he is Yahweh. When you say Jesus is Lord, Lordship, salvation guys say, well, that means God is sovereign. You have to believe that God is sovereign of everything in your life or you're not saved. No, you don't. That's not what it means. It means Jesus is God. Because when you say Jesus is Lord, Lord is a term for deity. And you're saying Jesus is God. He is Yahweh. Uh, then later we see that he is anointed by God the Holy Spirit. In uh, verse 8, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then we understand that he gave evidence, evidences of his Messiahship. He did good. He healed. He cast out demons. And those were evidences based on Old Testament passages that he was uh, who he claimed to be the Messiah. And then they talk also about his death. He was killed by hanging on a tree. And also his resurrection and appearances after his resurrection that God raised him up on the third day and showed him openly. So all of these are part of what's going on. And then Christ's appointment to be the future judge of the living and the dead. So then we get into Acts 11. Acts 11 is basically when Peter comes back and the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, that is, these were believers who came out of a pharisaical background, but they were already believing that uh, it's good to believe in Jesus, but might not be all you need to do. You also need to be circumcised. So they're, they're still carrying the law over into, uh, into the church age and adding that uh, as le- and now it's become legalism. So those from the circumcision said, you went in with uncircumcised men and ate with them? That was completely prohibited by the, by the law and by the traditions of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so Peter explains what happened. And he goes through the whole episode of the angel appearing to him, the, the vision he saw, uh, the messengers that came from Cornelius, and uh, what went on. And he said, um, the Spirit told me to go with him in verse 12, and he told us, we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in the house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, 14, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. That's in verse verse 14. Then we get down to verse uh, 17, where Peter is talking about what he told them. At, at verse 15 says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, as at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord about baptism. And verse 17, If therefore God gave them 
the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he doesn't say when we invited Jesus into our heart. He doesn't say when we invited Jesus into our life. He doesn't say when we repented. He says when we believed, because that's all that's necessary. When we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And so I put the Greek up there again with the transliteration, and the first is the participle, pistusasin is the participle, and it's a temporal participle indicating when. And we believed, uh, and here it's epi, okay, there, E-P-I, right? Let me get my arrow over there, right here. Not ace, but after digging around in some grammars to recover what I thought I had read some years ago, epi and ace become virtually interchangeable. Okay, so they mean the same thing. Believing on the name of Jesus is the same as believing in the name of Jesus. It's the same as believing that Jesus died on your sins. They are uh, uh, semantically equivalent. So he's saying, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I put these references here because these are other passages that use that same phrase, epi, uh, and focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we believe epiton curion Jesu, what does Paul say to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31? He says, what must I do to be saved? The answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And there he says, believe on him. So you have this different phraseology in Scripture, believing in Jesus, believing on Jesus, believing that Jesus. They all mean the same thing. You're trusting in Jesus Christ because of you've learned something about who he is and that he is able to pay the penalty uh, for our sins. So then we go on to uh, Acts eleven eighteen, and he says, when they, that is, these other apostles, heard these things, oh, and that would also include those of the, of the circumcision party, um, when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now, it doesn't say repentance of sin. It says repentance to life. They're turning to life. So they are using this phrase, repentance to life, as a synonym for understanding what, understanding that they are to believe in Christ. Okay? So that's how you work your way through understanding things in the scripture. You have phrases like, um, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they describe it by repentance to life. So those, that's what repentance to life means. It means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not something in addition to believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Acts 11.20, it says there at the end, they are proclaiming the good news, not preaching Jesus, but proclaiming uh, the good news. That's in verse 20. New King James, preaching the Lord Jesus, it's proclaiming the good news about Jesus. It's, it's talking about who he is and what he did, uh, what he did on the cross. Now, we skip chapters 12, 13, and 14 because that's dealing with Paul going on his first missionary journey. We'll come back to 13 uh, next time. 
But in chapter 15, after Paul has gone to the Gentiles and he comes back to Jerusalem, uh, there's this controversy over what must Gentiles be required to do. And we read in verse 1, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So those that's the party of the circumcision. These were uh, believers who had a pharisaical background, and they just couldn't quite shake the law because that they, that had just been uh, drilled into them so much as they were grow, growing up. So now there's there's division. Verse 2, therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that means when they had just a lot of heated arguments, no small dissension and and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because of elevation. uh, To the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all all the brethren. So that's an important statement. It is their belief in Christ is described as conversion. They're, they're turning. Uh, they caused great joy to all the brethren, and when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, so it tells us they're believers, rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So this is the debate, and they're going to work their way through that in this chapter. So in verse 8, we read that as they had had all this dispute, Peter stands up in verse 7 and talks about what happened when he went to see Cornelius. And in verse 8, he says, So God, who knows the heart, heart here means the innermost part of the soul, the thinking of the soul, uh, knows the heart, acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as, just as is so important. What happened to the, to Cornelius and the Gentiles was exactly like what happened to the, to the original 11 apostles on the day of Pentecost. They received the Holy Spirit. Who was present? Peter and John in Acts 2, Peter and John with the Samaritans in Acts 8, and um, Peter in Acts 10 and 11. They, they're identical, and it shows that they're all one in the body of Christ. And then in verse 9 it says, It made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. It is by means of faith, but not just faith in faith. Some people just say, all you need to do is believe. Believe what? You have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that he died on the cross for our sins. Then you go down to about verse 19, and what happens in between is that he um, explains this further. Verse 11 says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved as the same manner as they. So everybody gets saved the same way. And so they continue to discuss this, and you get down to verse verse 19, and um, by this time you have James stands up, 
and addresses addresses the crowd. And in his uh, address, he says, Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's the same idea. That's what repentance is. It's changing direction. It's turning to God. And this is the first thing I pointed out last time. When you look at metanoia, you have so many people out there who will tell you it means repenting from your sin. Uh, remorse. If you look, uh, repent up in the English dictionary, it will say remorse, feeling sorry for your sins. Never trust the, an English dictionary to define a word the way it's used in the Bible. And metanoeo has that idea of changing your mind. You look it up in BDAG, it says primarily it means to change the mind, unquote. So that's the idea. And it's the changing the mind is turning, turning from idols to God uh, on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's verse uh, verse 19. And this word epistrepho, which is translated turn, is used synonymously with metanoeo for repentance. Okay, so that brings us to Galatians 1.1, which is a good stopping point. But what I've pointed out is so far what we're seeing is that they talk about uh, who Jesus is. They talk about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the in some places the ascension, but it's primarily the resurrection of, of Christ and believing on him. Those are the key elements in any gospel presentation. Now, you may not, and, and, and they'll talk sometimes about forgiveness of sins, other times justification, other times uh, having a fullness of life, the abundant life, or eternal life. So it varies. Different aspects are talked about. And usually when, and I know a lot of these guys who believe in the crossless gospel, and I've heard them give the gospel, and, you know, they'll fight tooth and nail for their view that, that you all a person really has to do, the minimal is trust Christ. But then when they give the gospel, they'll, they'll talk about the cross, they'll talk about the... You know, sometimes people just get all caught up in some minutia, and it just causes a lot of problems in the body of Christ. So we'll come back next time. We'll talk about Galatians, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15, and that will wrap up this. But it's so important for us, it, not only as believers, because it reminds us of what we did. And we come to a better understanding of what happened when we trusted Christ as Savior. But it also gives us the opportunity to think through how are we going to explain this to people when we get an opportunity to witness and what are are the uh, good verses that I ought to memorize to be prepared. And we put up every year, we start over, we put up some different verses for memory, and this last year we've done this, we're going to start over with it again, but in the promise book, we have all these verses starting off with promises for salvation, and then promises related to eternal security and the assurance of salvation, and then promises for various issues in life, and they're all listed. So we're going to be doing some things with that coming up that we'll let you know about when we're ready. And this will give people an opportunity to memorize these salvation verses and salvation promises so that God the Holy Spirit has something to work with when you get an opportunity to give the gospel to somebody that that is interested in hearing the, 
the gospel and somebody who needs to hear the gospel and you have that opportunity and the Holy Spirit can bring that back to your memory, but it has to be there first. For some of us, it has to be there, put in there a lot of times because as you get older, I just thank God that when I was a, a, a little boy, my mother had me memorizing a lot of scripture. When I was in Sunday school, we memorized scripture. When I went to uh, Christian camp, we memorized scripture. And so many times, it's those scriptures that I keep coming back to. And uh, I remember the first year I was a pastor, and I would be uh, teaching on something, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit would bring these verses to mind that I'd memorized 10 years before. And I hadn't even thought about them when I was preparing my notes, but they would just come to my mind. And that's why it's important to memorize Scripture. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to understand that the issue is believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and because he is who he claimed to be, he could go to the cross and die in our place and pay the penalty for sin. And that understanding that, that Jesus died for us, and that he paid that penalty and trusting in him is the core of the gospel. And, Father, we just thank you so much that we have everlasting life and we can count on it, and we anticipate that day when we are advanced to heaven. And, Father, help us when we minister to people, give the gospel to people, help us to remember these things that we have learned. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.